Welcome to a recording from a Latrobe Asia public event. The panel you're about to hear is on human rights, refugees and North Korea. It features Hyun Seo Lee, a North Korean defector, author and activist, Dr. Jay Song from the University of Melbourne, and Dr. Danielle Chubb from Deakin University. It is chaired by Dr. Rebecca Strating from Latrobe University. The event was introduced by Kelly Smith, the Pro Vice Chancellor International from Latrobe University, and it was recorded at the State Library of Victoria on the 8th of August, 2018. Good evening, all, and welcome to Refugee Crisis, Human Rights, and North Korea, a Latrobe Asia event in partnership with the 2018 Bendigo Writers Festival. My name is Kelly Smith, and I am the Pro Vice Chancellor International at Latrobe University, and I'm also a member of the Latrobe. Asia Steering Committee, and on behalf of the Vice Chancellor of Latrobe University, Professor John Dewar, and the Chair of the Latrobe Asia Steering Committee, Professor Keith Nugent, I'd like to welcome you to this exceptionally interesting and exciting event this evening. I would like to start as well by acknowledging the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people, who are the traditional custodians of the land on which we have gathered today. Pay my respects to their elders and people past and present. Extend that respect to other Aboriginal Australians uh, who are present and any elders who are present here with us today. La Trobe University is very proud of our engagement with the international community and La Trobe Asia is integral to these efforts and it is public events like this that explore the important humanitarian global issues of our time that are an example of what can be achieved. La Trobe University, which is 51 years old this year, uh, has a very long and proud commitment to uh, social issues, and we're very proud to be able to support this event as part of our commitment to those uh, issues and to awareness of those issues. The speakers we will hear from this evening are experts in the field of human rights and North Korean activism, and it's my pleasure to welcome and to introduce them to you this evening. Hyunso Lee is a North Korean refugee, a refugee advocate and author. Dr. Danielle Chubb is a senior lecturer in international relations at Deakin University. Dr. Jay Song is a Korea Foundation senior lecturer in Korean studies at the Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. Tonight's event is chaired by Dr. Rebecca Strating, who is a lecturer in politics in the Department of Politics and Philosophy at La Trobe University. I'm sure, like me, you're all excited and interested to hear from this uh, exceptional panel, and I really look forward to uh, learning the insights of all of them uh, about the issue this evening. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming our speakers, and I would now like to pass proceedings on to Dr. Strating. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Kelly. Well, first, I would like to thank you all for joining us here tonight. Uh, for most defectors, the decision to leave North Korea is never an easy one, uh, and those crossing into China risk arrest and deportation, and the safety of those that are left behind uh, is always in question. 
There are also major difficulties in addressing uh, the refugee crisis. North Korean refugees often face challenges in accessing uh, the supports, the services that they need once, a, once they reach safety. So while many settle in South Korea, there is now a global North Korean diaspora shaping the global policy debate towards North Korea. Uh, and the status of these refugees is, of course, an international issue. Refugee flows occur within a rapidly changing context of international relations. Uh, and this is particularly true uh, in relation to the Korean Peninsula, which over the last 18 months has experienced significant upheaval uh, from missile testing in, in 2017 to a series of, of summits signalling detente uh, between the North and South uh, in 2018. So I too would like to warmly welcome our three speakers uh, here tonight to help us to understand and grapple with these complex and challenging issues. Uh, so tonight's events are going to uh, proceed in the following manner. We'll begin with Jay and Danielle uh, giving us an academic or a scholarly context uh, around issues of, of migration, uh, activism and human rights uh, in relation to North Korea. Uh, and then uh, I'll invite uh, the four of us to engage in a discussion where we'll talk to uh, Hyonso uh, about her, her book uh, and about her experiences as an activist um, working in the global community to try to advance the human rights uh, of, of refugees. Uh, so uh, with that, and then after that, I'll open the uh, floor up to questions uh, and uh, we'll, we'll um, you know, have a discussion among all of us about some of the issues that have been raised. So I'll begin uh, with our first speaker, uh, Dr Jay Song. Uh, is a Korea Foundation Senior Lecturer uh, in Korean Studies at the Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne. And she has published extensively on North Korean human rights and migration uh, and has interviewed more than 500 North Korean refugees since 1999, which I think you'll agree is an astonishing number and, and just a, a really great amount of research. Um, so if you'll uh, help me Thank Jay and uh, welcome her to the, the stage. Thank you so much. Thanks, Beck, for a very kind introduction and thank you, Latrobe University, for providing this wonderful event and rare event to see Hyun Sao Lee, uh, who's here with us today. Um, I'm a senior lecturer in Korean studies at the University of Melbourne, so just a few uh, tram stops from you know, up north. <laughs> uh, I've been interviewing North Koreans since 1999, so I've been probably interviewing uh, people since the age of five. <laughs> Sorry, it's not very funny. Uh, <laughs> so I, I'm old enough to um, you know, interview people. I'm, I'm qualified, I have a PhD qualification. Um, so just to, I'm, I'm here as a boring academic here. I mean, today's star is obviously uh, Hyunsa, who's uh, traveled all, uh, all the way from South Korea to uh, you know, give Australian audience a book tour. And she'll be uh, definitely talking to us after my boring sort of background, academic background, to the issue of uh, North Korean migration and human rights issues. Um, there are about 30,000 North Koreans living in South Korea, but they're the lucky ones, obviously. There are about 20 million people living in the north uh, under a very brutal and repressive regime. Uh, they have a new leader who 
probably all of us know, Kim Jong-un, who had a very friendly conversation with President Donald Trump a few months back. Um, so there's a new, a totally new political environment uh, in the Korean Peninsula. Um, and in, the South, in South Korea, the population is about 50 million people, and they um, you know, North Korean defecting, just uh, defection uh, normally happens when they cross the border to China. But we don't know how many North Koreans are actually staying and wandering around in China. The normal route is that they cross the border to China. The old route is they go either to Mongolia or Russia. But later on, as Hyunsa did, Hyunsa is a very uh, rare case if you read, his, uh, read, read her book. Um, she uh, first flew from Shanghai to South Korea, which is probably uh, 1% of the whole uh, North Korean resident uh, who successfully arrived in South Korea. Most North Koreans will uh, you know, uh, conduct a very um, arduous journey going through China and Southeast Asia. The most popular route is go to Laos and Cambodia, Thailand, and when they reach the South Korean embassy in Bangkok, they will be detained for several months until uh, South Korean government sends a chartered airplane to fetch them to Incheon International Airport in South Korea. So it's a very long journey, obviously, uh, because South Korea Peninsula is divided in the 38th parallel since the end of the Korean War in 1953. So uh, we don't know the number. Uh, the estimation is 50,000. That's the Chinese government uh, estimation. But the NGOs who are actually working on the ground will see uh, 200,000 uh, North Koreans, especially uh, after the famine and the series of natural disasters in the mid-1990s. They've been sort of hiding in a uh, um, Chinese household. Uh, Hyunsoo's case, she was living with her relatives in Shenyang. Um, so she was the, um, I mean, she's, she's a real hero. I mean, she survived. But they're, uh, we don't know the number who perish uh, or, you know, through this journey and who didn't even you know, cross that border to uh, China and still uh, remain in, in North Korea. Um, so as I said, um, Hyunso is a very rare case. I mean, she shows, um, uh, you've probably seen her uh, TED talk, it's an amazing speech. She was the first North Korean who gave, uh, delivered that speech, very emotional, uh, very true to herself. Uh, I was very moved by it, and, and she, mo she motivated and moved a lot of uh, millions of people around the world. She's still, she's, uh, and then she published her book in 2015. Um, high, she's showing a high uh, level of adaptability and intelligence. And um, what I really like about her book was that she's showing all her little tricks, you know, the mimicking and learning the, the language, the Chinese, and master the language, and just uh, pretending, you know, you know, enough to pretend that she's a, a local Chinese. Um, and you know, she was very candid about her whole experience when she was telling about how, how she had to lie, uh, hide her identity and purchase the, um, the ID, the Chinese ID from a mentally ill Chinese citizen <laughs> as how she live uh, you know, in China with that um, false ID. It's a very candid one. I mean, but that's the only way to survive you know, this uh, difficult journey is pretending to be Chinese. But when she flew from Shanghai to um, Incheon uh, Airport, she had to prove herself she's North Korean, not Chinese, because she won't probably become uh, Chinese, you know, all these years living in China for 11 years. It's a very rare case, so we're very lucky to have her today. Um, um, but the, the other point that was, uh, I, I want to make is that there is a, a trend in uh, memoirs written by North Koreans. Uh, there is a recent defection by uh, Tae Yong-ho, who's uh, number two, the deputy ambassador to the UK. Uh, he, he's written his memoir in Korean, 
so his, his main audience is Korean people. He wanted to probably talk to the Korean audience first and uh, try to tell them and educate uh, Korean uh, academics working on North Korea, someone like me, and the inner workings of uh, Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea. And there are also other former diplomats like Ko Young-hwan and the family member of the Kim family, Lee Han-young, uh, Hwang Jang-yeop, who was the chancellor of the Kim Il-sung University. They all wrote and published their first memoirs in, in Korean, whereas uh, the new generation, uh, she, I think she started the new movement, uh, bringing this new generation of North Korean uh, defectors or re uh, refugees in, in, uh, in South Korea, sort of internationalized that, that narrative uh, and bringing the next generation, uh, for example, like Park mi you've probably seen her TED talk or other speeches as well. Uh, and Shin dong was before her, but after her there, Joseph Kim um, and other younger North Korean uh, refugees publishing in English first without uh, their Korean memoir. So the target audience has shifted from the Korean, um, so the, uh, those who have been working for the North Korean regime, they publish their uh, memoirs in Korea, whereas the younger generation, more sort of ordinary, um, and, and people from Hesan, which is the northern part of North Korea, which uh, the areas that, that are easy, uh, easier to cross the border to China, the ordinary younger generation of North Koreans are, are actually talking to the broader than the Korean audience, which, which are you, uh, including the Australian audience. So that's the, uh, um, the trend I've, I've noticed as a scholar. Um, yeah, one more thing. And the one more thing about her being a true survival is that the North Korean, the 30,000 North Korean living in South Korea, they're, they're not doing very well uh, because of um, the difficult uh, you know, adjustment period, uh, the, the difficulties they, um, they're exper experiencing in adjusting to a South Korean capitalist system is very, very competitive. They don't have the uh, compatible language or computer skills. Uh, they're not used to those you know, free competitive um, capitalist world. Uh, one fourth of the North Koreans are living under the age of, uh, under, under the poverty line uh, and the unemployment and suicide rate is very high. So this is something that South Korean has to overcome if they're preparing for the uh, national unification. But she's doing very well. She's here in Melbourne together with us uh, showing um, her great personal charm. <laughs> uh, um, the other thing about the North Korean migration, um, in the 1990s, it started as a sort of a lot of uh, women and children are trafficked to uh, Chinese uh, farmers or um, the farmers or husbands, a Chinese family, so they're trafficked to uh, be a bride of a Chinese, Chinese citizen. They started as, a, as, a, as tra human trafficking, then they sort of grew their own um, agency uh, and survival skills in China, uh, and they, well, some of them, including Hyunsa, managed to hire brokers and smugglers to self-smuggle, uh, to, to, to bring them to uh, the southern uh, border to, to Southeast Asia. Uh, and then they can claim their refugee status. When they reach uh, South Korea, the journey uh, is, is not over. I mean, the migration is an ongoing process. When they reach South Korea, they know uh, they face the new challenges. And there is a recent trend that the, the North Korean migrants uh, who acquire South Korean citizens, they're migrating again, re-migrating to Western Europe, North, North America, and some of them uh, 
come to here in Australia. So the migration is an ongoing process. It's a refugee, you know, coming from, escaping from a repressive regime and, you know, being there permanently, you know, happily ever after. So you have to understand it's an ongoing process. We don't know when or where, you know, Hyunso is going to be, you know, she could probably, you know, seek for permanent residence in Australia one day if she's in love with Australia and, you know, the nature and environment, we never know. So it's, um, migration is an ongoing process. That's what I want to um, emphasize to you. Finally, human rights. Um, I think we all agree that um, North Korea has a serious and grave human rights, human rights violation. But when it comes to approach, uh, how to deal with this human rights violation, there are two different schools. One, we, whether we like it or not, we need to engage with the regime because they're taking hostage of 20 million North Koreans there. Uh, so whether you like it or not, like Kim Jong-un or not, you have to keep engaging with them, try, uh, keep trying opening the market, uh, keep talking to the people and doing a trade, uh, sort of pouring a lot of money into so that they can uh, learn about the market value and uh, the value of uh, private property then the middle class will grow. That's one approach, that's engagement. Another thing is that uh, Kim Jong-un is never gonna change. He will just keep repressing people. He, he is the worst kind of dictator. So the only way is to end the regime. So there will be sort of violent option. Even the military option was considered, especially uh, in Washington. Uh, there was one of the options, the viable option on the table. Uh, so we don't know, you know, there are two different schools of approaching uh, how to end human rights violation in North Korea. I probably belong to the former. I don't like the regime. It's, uh, it's a terrible regime that's been uh, isolating itself, uh, isolating its people from the rest of the world. I myself, I'm a South Korean citizen. I want to visit North Korea. I don't have freedom of movement. I don't have access to the country as a scholar to study the country, the nation, the people I want to study. Um, so whether I like it or not, of course, they are, of course I don't like it, but the only way to uh, solve this problem in a peaceful manner is to keep engaging with the regime. We might have different views, we can talk about it during the panel, but thank you so much for your attention. Thank you, Jay. Uh, our next speaker is Dr. Danielle Chubb, uh, who is a senior lecturer in international relations at Deakin University. Uh, and Danielle has recently co-edited a volume on North Korean human rights activism and networks, uh, which was published just August this year. Is that I haven't right? seen it yet. Haven't seen it yet. So this is uh, hot off the press uh, with Cambridge University Press and has previously written a book uh, in 2014 uh, on activism and inter-Korean relations. So join me in welcoming uh, Danielle. Thanks, Beck, um, and thank you for having me here today. Um, I'll just briefly mention that um, Jay, if you're interested in this amazing work that Jay has done with North Korean defectors, this book that Rebecca just mentioned um, has a chapter um, from Jay looking at the role that North Koreans um, have played in, in the activist movement over the years. So it's a great honour for me to be here tonight um, and also to be presenting alongside Hyunso. Hyunso, um, I met Hyunso for the first time back when we were young leaders back in 2012 when we were still considered young leaders with a um, Honolulu-based think tank, um, Pacific Forum, with, which looks at strategic issues. So I guess 
I mean, I'm also going to provide a boring academic context, but it's going to be slightly different to Jay's, um, insofar as, as an international relations scholar, I've been interested in these questions of order and justice. And what I mean by that is, when I think about why you guys are here today, I thought, well, why would you come to listen to this kind of talk? I don't think it's purely because you have just a scholarly curiosity about North Korea. I suspect that many of you are here to hear Hyunzo speak because you're worried about what's going on inside North Korea, and you're curious about what people like Hyunso are trying to do to bring about change and what kinds of change can be brought about and how we can do that. And also, in the back of our minds always, is this uh, the nuclear situation, the nuclear scenario on the Korean Peninsula. I mean, it's been at the forefront of our minds over the past 18 months. And this question of how do we achieve order, how do we have security, how do we have a safe Korean Peninsula, one in which everyone can live without fear of a nuclear attack, and yet at the same time achieve justice for the North Korean people who don't have their own voice, those inside North Korea, is one that we've been asking. And at the Singapore summit, there was this, what I think, very binary discussion about, well, you can't raise human rights or securities off the table. I think things are actually much more complicated than that, more nuanced than that. And um, that's good news because it means that you can talk about human rights when it comes to North Korea and not take security off the table. And I think evidence of this is that since 2014 at least, the entire world has been very aware of the human rights situation in North Korea. Since the United Nations Commission of Inquiry report, chaired by our very own Michael Kirby, published their very substantive and comprehensive report condemning North Korea for its human rights violations, suggesting that it is most probably um, uh, that the leadership is um, guilty of crimes against humanity, the world knows what's going on inside North Korea. And state leaders have no excuse. They know what's going on inside. There's no longer, uh, um, there's no longer the excuse to plead ignorance. And we've been pushing North Korea on this. And yet we still see two leaders coming together at the table. We still see North Korea engaging in the international community. Talking about one does not mean that the other can't be talked about. That doesn't mean we should be going to a security summit and talk about human rights necessarily, but I think we need to be aware that, that things can be talked about. But I've already gotten off track, so I'm going to come back to my main topic. I'm particularly interested in the role that individuals can play in this role. Like you think about international relations, you think about security and nuclear bombs, and you think about states and powerful national security interests, realpolitik, this kind of Machiavellian world. And yet individuals, people like Hyunso, can actually affect change. The Commission of Inquiry report was um, entirely the result of dedicated activists that have been working on North Korean human rights issues since the late 1990s, uh, including defectors. Um, and so I'm going to talk very briefly about that network of activists and kind of how human rights activism has come to where we are now, because that's really what I'm interested in, and then quickly talk. I'm going to pick up on what Jay was saying right at the end about the different ways to bring about change inside North Korea and the kind of options that, that are there. So. Um, the North Korean human rights issue, the North Korean human rights network is made up of lots of different actors. Um, defectors like Hyun So, um, who stand up and, and you know, they've, they've had this arduous, they've had this difficult life in outside North Korea, you've made this difficult decision to leave, surely, at the very least, you deserve a quiet, peaceful life in South Korea. And, and most people do that, but some people like Hyun So, and in her book she says it very clearly, she says, I love my country, how, can't, how can I not be a patriot? I need to stand up and say something. Some people are really motivated to do this. But back in the 1990s, we didn't have these voices. We didn't have voices from inside North Korea. And at the time of the famine, just as Seonso did in 97, many North Koreans started leaving North Korea. Most of them 
um, for economic reasons, because they needed to leave to survive, they needed to leave to find food. The famine was so bad that you couldn't survive, the, the public distribution system had broke, broken down and there was, uh, many people were struggling to survive. <clears throat> and as these people came into China, they brought with them stories and they brought with them information and evidence and the world started to learn, well some, those who chose to listen started to learn about um, the stratified social system inside North Korea, the fact that this allegedly socialist paradise of equal opportunity was in fact one in which it was very hard to move between um, levels of society. And if you were perceived to be hostile to the state, there was no way to escape this. We learned about the lack of civil and political rights, lack of movement, no religious freedoms, um, and most horrifyingly, we learned about the um, system of prison camps inside the country designed to repress dissent that always hangs over the lives of people inside North Korea as they go about their daily lives. And in response to this, a network of human, right activists, human rights activists started to emerge. Most of these were in Washington, D.C., and also some in Seoul and other places, but these were the main locales. Uh, and also there's a system of activists and advocates working on the border region and helping out people who are um, fleeing China and providing humanitarian assistance, uh, among other things. So in, in, in the US, the political, political environment allowed for human rights activism to flourish. Insofar as, um, since the end of the Cold War, we hadn't talked much about communism or these evil um, states, but there was still a narrative. We, that there, was, there were people inside um, the US with connections to power who'd been worried about the North Korean human rights situation. In the 70s, for example, the first um, Congress hearing on North Korean human rights was held way as early as 1976. So there was this environment. It was very much connected to the Cold War. It's very kind of hawkish, but these, there was an environment for this human rights discourse to flourish. And so people listened, and the human rights network kind of started. And those inside South Korea faced a very different situation. Right? In South Korea, you had, um, for the first time, a truly democratic government emerging and a progressive government that wanted to have good relations with North Korea. And in this environment, and still today, this is the case, though not to such a strong degree, it is very difficult to talk about human rights, uh, North Korean human rights in South Korea without being accused of ulterior motives. Um, and so these, these activists connected with their US um, counterparts for funds, um, but also for voice, and this is how the transnational network started. But over the years, this network has diversified greatly. Um, as the space opened up inside South Korea, um, particularly between about 2007 and 2015-16, human rights activism there has been, has been able to find a, um, a place, and a lot of people have made their, a lot of activists have made their lives there, a lot of organisations have been set up um, with all different kinds of agendas, from sending information inside, to, inside North Korea to preparing for um, justice post some kind of transition. Um, and so what that means, I think, is that when we look at the North Korean Human Rights Act, a Network, most of us just see a, um, one side of it. But there are many different perspectives, as Jay said, on how to bring about change inside, um, how to bring about change inside North Korea. So that kind of brings me to how I wanted to finish this, to talk to you about, well then, what are these ways of bringing about change? Um, so I think there are, Jay talked about two kinds, and I'm going to add a, an extra one on the end, although it's often not talked about in the human rights case. Um, and the first is, well, first of all, I want to say to preface briefly, the debate over whether or not human rights and security should be linked, as I said, I think is quite simplistic. Um, 
the human rights and security issues in North Korea are linked, whether we like it or not. The same reason the North Korean regime pursues a nuclear capability um, is, so the reason that North Korea pursues a nuclear capability is the same reason the North Korean regime represses its people. These are, these are very closely linked issues. It's about survival. Um, and so, but that doesn't mean that pressure alone will work, I think. I, so for your consideration, here are three different kinds of ways of bringing about change. And if you in your own lives want to do something about human rights in North Korea, think about, as Jay said, what kind of change you think is the most desirable. There's no right answer to this question. Like, how, how can change be brought about? Um, the first that I see activists talking about are those who were engaged very closely with the Commission of Inquiry report, trying to bring about legal and institutional channels for change, working within the United Nations, engaging with North Korea, drawing them into this kind of huge human rights infrastructure that we have. Um, North Korea has already acknowledged four human rights treaties, and drawing them into that, into verification and ratification processes, is important to many advocates. Um, but there are others who see the North Korean human rights situation as it's too urgent for this. This kind of change is too slow. This kind of stuff is too incremental. We need to bring about change. Of course, there's this idea like, from a military perspective of pressure from above, but this kind of change can also happen from below. So many of these activists say, well, pressure, the change won't come from above. The regime is so corrupt that it will never change. And so we need to provide the North Korean people with information because, as Hyunso says in her book so eloquently, North Korean people don't have access to alternative sources of information. And when you're brought up in this environment, how do you know that there are alternatives out there? And so there are many, many who believe that the best way to bring about change is to put information inside the country surreptitiously through radio broadcasts, through USB sticks, um, lots of different ways. And it doesn't take a lot of Google searching to find these kinds of, um, uh, these kinds of activism. And then finally, a third strategy focuses more on social and economic rights. This is not usually talked about as a human rights approach, and yet the UN Commission of Inquiry report said itself that the right to food and related aspects of the right, right to life are core aspects of North Korean human rights. And so trying to, um, if the goal of, of human rights is to free, free the oppressed from, um, from bondage, then delivering economic and social rights is also a legitimate human rights approach. Um, so I think I'll stop there, because I've probably gone on for too long, but um, that's kind of a brief overview of, of, of activism and, and North Korea. Thank you, Danielle. Uh, and I am delighted to now introduce uh, our special guest, uh, Hyun So Lee, uh, who is a North Korean refugee and author of this memoir. This is a memoir uh, written in 20, or published in 2015, uh, The Girl with Seven Names, uh, Escape from North Korea, uh, which tells of uh, your experience uh, with fleeing North Korea through China uh, and later helping uh, members of your family make the same journey. Uh, so uh, I might just begin by, by asking you uh, a few questions. I'm not sure uh, how many people in the audience are, are familiar with your story, uh, but this is one, your, uh, your uh, journey out of North Korea uh, began 
began when you were just 17 years old, where you made that decision to make that danger, dangerous crossing. I mean, that's uh, astonishing um, that, that you, you made that kind of bold move. I'm wondering whether you can sort of um, tell us, uh, what were you thinking at the time? Uh, what was motivating you to, to make that journey? Uh, and and uh, the, the book um, details, you know, for some, some times where you actually had regrets kind of making that journey. So what were you thinking? We grew up with constant, watching constant public executions. We just watched people or the victims are dying in front of people. Or we grew up watching, you know, Sometimes the entire family disappeared in the middle of the night. They are just sent, forcibly sent to the political prison camp by the regime. To me, seeing the, um, we had a big famine from 1994 to early 2000s. When I see the people dying on the street, I was really shocked because that wasn't first time for me to seeing people dying because I saw when I was seven, I saw the hangings in North Korea. So, but I thought, because we were brainwashed, and then I thought those people, I mean, we, I didn't know the outside. There was no comparison. So I didn't know the executions are not right things to do to people. So I thought that's a normal things to do, like in the outside of the countries. I thought they are all kids, people in the same way. But when I was facing the famine, people were just, they were starved. I thought people were dying for starvation, like maybe in the movies or, or during the war period. But I thought my country was the paradise and we were having the most greatest or, or respected the dear leader from the whole planet. But under his protection, we were dying there. So that was really strong me then watching the public execution to me. And then on the same time, I just, because at that period, I was living on the border with China. And North Korea is, even today, it's completely blocked from the outside world. And then watching uh, any foreign media contents, it's illegal, even today. So back then in 1995, you know, 7, at that time we didn't have Korean dramas or Hollywood movies fled into North Korea. But I was very first generation, I guess, to saw foreign media, media contents by secretly watching Chinese TV at the time. Because I was living on the border and we had TV at the time and then I could realize that my TV could pick up Chinese TV signals. And then from the Chinese TV, I saw those top, probably G.O.D. at the time, the really famous Korean singers or band dancing very strangely to me. <laughs> and Everything is a, looked so different compared to North Korea. The, the most shocking thing to me is China, the TV, Chinese TV has so many different channels, I couldn't even count. But in North Korea, we only have one TV channel until today. Yeah, Pyongyang has only two, but the, besides Pyongyang, the people we can't, uh, you know, I mean, we can't approach another TV channel. One is only for Pyongyang citizens. So we only have one TV channel in North Korea. It's filled with propaganda. So watching Chinese TV, I was so stunned. 
and it was really mesmerized to me. And then standing on the border, I was staring at China for so long. I mean, maybe two years I was doing that. And then at the same time, I saw two different worlds. One, I saw darkness in my homeland where people are dying there. And then power shortages every night almost. But the other side, the other I witnessed the brilliant, vibrant colors of just another world right in front of me, just 10 meters ahead of me. And then that bigger curiosity and attraction made me cross the border into China in the end because I just wanted to find out the answer, not through the TV, but with my own eyes. That's how I wanted to see China. But I didn't know that that even the moment I was crossing border into China, I didn't know that would be last minute with my country and it would be led long separation with my family. Nor could I have even realized that brilliant new world in China, actually I have to avoid the country and I have to live in the shadows. Absolutely had no idea. So today people ask me like, where did you have the courage to escape the country? Or where do you have the courage to do speaking out against the regime? So I didn't know what's the courage to me. Seriously, I really didn't know about a refugee or a repatriation. It's not common vocabulary to use in North Korea. But all I knew was just I was naive, but just the curiosity about the outside world. And certainly I didn't know that's that dangerous journey because until you experience that, Nobody knows what's ahead of in front of you. So if I knew that, believe me, I don't think I will cross the border into China. Because why people today so have sympathy about me, as we, I mean, all experts about North Korea, everyone knows, at that period, until we had big famine, most defectors escaped the country in searching for food. But my situation was... I was pretty grew up in a pretty good family because we have a social hierarchy in North Korea even today. But I was lucky being born in a pretty nice family, so I never suffered what's the starvation. But only because of the curiosity, I crossed the border into China accidentally, and then that totally suddenly, just forever changed my life. And then. I suffered everything that I couldn't imagine in my life. And that's how people had sympathy about this girl, how she could cope with everything without you know, having her family members. And it's an absolutely riveting um, story of the sorts of challenges that you faced um, once you crossed over um, and how adaptable uh, you were in the face of those challenges. But I think one of um, the really striking themes of this book and um, from somebody you know, who, who lives in the West and coming from a Western perspective um, was something that, that I found really interesting um, is that, that, that story you're telling, um, you sort of come back to it of this regret of, of, of doing that, of, of leaving North Korea and these moments where, you know, you realise you, you might never see your family again. And then later on in the story when you've um, helped your family, um, members of your family come out of North Korea and they're experiencing a similar form of regret. And I think um, at, the, at the sort of the end of the book you're detailing, you know, convincing your brother to stay um, in South Korea. Um, and, and so I'm wondering whether you can draw on, on, on what it is 
that meant that you wanted to go back or that you experienced that kind of regret? Because I guess for those of us, uh, you know, we think of North Korea as being a, a totalitarian, brutal regime. But for you, you know, even though you were in uh, a free society, um, there was still this sort of wanting to, to, do, to go back. Uh, I think maybe when people heard that I'm sure regretted about my defection, but I know how, I, maybe always there's sometimes I have two different answers. One answer for the public, but one answer is really true from my mind. So I have to say something courageous words to people, which I've been doing it, but at the same time, my heart feel like I'm so sad. Because I'm a, the person who exactly experienced that. For example, like, oh, people say, like, you have, uh, there's God. I, I'm so happy you got through all the difficulties and then the position you are where you are today. And then maybe God has a mission to you. So I was thinking, that's not really comfort for me, those, you know, those words because because I'm exactly the person who went through for 20 years so far every single process so only nine years so far I just had freedom in my life real freedom so when people ask my age I say nine years old <laughs> <laughs> because this is my freedom age and but before that but even today, I'm suffering in my own way, but security or everything. But before that, I didn't live as a normal human being. All the suffer I had in my life, I don't want to be chosen by God, be uh, the person to speak out for North Korean people. I said, why that's me? Why not somebody else? I just want to have a normal life like everyone here. Like, want to see my family, Whenever I want to see or my relatives for holidays gathering together, but I lost everything. Because to have this freedom, I lost all my relatives, all my friends, and I had to be separated from my family more than 13 years. And you have to behind my 17 years of memories. So to me, I lost everything. That's why I just wanted to have a normal life. So who didn't really experience my life, they couldn't understand. So I was thinking, if there's a time machine, take me back to when I was 17. I, I asked this question so, I mean, thousand times, I guess. Would I still do the same decision, even though I know the, all the answers in the future? I, I say, no. Because you know why? It's not fancy at all to me to, I mean, raising human rights always, I mean, obviously in North Korea is really important, but to me, where is my life then? Because, I mean, after I just crossed the border into China, I mean, I didn't know we would be considered as illegal migrants, and then I had to be hide from the Chinese police all the time, and then there's a horrible experience from there. And then I had to run away from my arranged marriage when I was 19. I didn't go to China for marry somebody. So the day I escaped, I had to find a job because I don't have money or I, didn't know, I don't know where to sleep. And I found my very first job in my life. And then soon, to my horror, I found out that was brothel, prostitution. So that afternoon, I was so shocked because 
in North Korea, even today, capitalism is illegal. So I never even heard about what's prostitution. I can't imagine in this world such a job even can be existed. But I know something is wrong. It's not something right thing to do. So, I mean, by luck, within 24 hours, I escaped. I, I sometimes many people say I have very quick brain. That really helped me to survive until today whenever I encounter so many troubles. So that thing happened even at the time. After escape that, I mean, you read all my stories, just kidnapping gangsters, and then Chinese policemen, etc. everything. And then I thought that was all end. But when I was bringing my family seven years ago, I had to get through another process that it's one third of story from my book. I mean, I can't describe the, the long stories, but if, again, there's so many what if in my life. I, I feel what if at the time I didn't cross the border? What if my family was caught at the time during the journey to freedom with me? Then will, be, will I be ended up in a public execution? Because I had source screen passports. It's not a joke in North Korean regime's perspective. So, so many what ifs and so many regrets. But in the end, I was so lucky to sitting here today to talk about that. But when I was suffering, when I was, uh, you know, fight for survive, every moment I was doing to just to survive. But I didn't know my story would be shared worldwide at that time. I didn't make the story to share to somebody. Only just uh, that that was my life. And then now people are getting, what was it, just inspiration by my story. The reason I wrote this book only to just uh, tell the world about North Korean human rights situation, because I, in the end, I, I didn't want to publish this book, by the way. After my TED talk, so many publishers, publishers around the country, including South Korea, wanted to publish my story. And I said, no, this, I feel like my story is not a great story. I feel this is a shame. I don't want, this, I wanted to hide this forever with me. So in my TED talk, also, I didn't really talk about my personal story that much. Generally about North Korea, I did that because I don't want to talk about my story. But in the end, I was convinced that my story is not my story. It's a story of 25 million North Koreans still suffering under the regime. And more, maybe 200,000 defectors are hiding in China even today there. So it's their story. So I was convinced to write, and then that's how I intend I wrote it. But after I writing, so many people besides that, so, so many people were inspired. They kept sending texts, even today, saying, when my daughter had a car accident, she broke her leg, she lost her leg but, from Italy. But I, that summer I read your book, and then how I overcame from that situation, your book. And then somebody who I got cancer, but et cetera, et cetera. And then one young student, I guess, I failed the university entrance exams three times. I was almost so gave up that. But after I read your book, I realized that's nothing. I will try again. <laughs> so I feel so happy for that, to reading. But on the same time, what I realized, I'm more more living in depression because I didn't want it to think about my life in the past but after writing this memoir every day it's a, keep telling me this is you and then your experience and medias conferences book and then in the past actually I didn't know what's depression 
because when especially you will know that in South Korea many famous you know stars actresses sometimes they commit suicide and then it's big news on the media and then I was thinking I was criticizing them I said you have too fancy life <laughs> that's why you have time to depress put you in depression yourself if you live like me every moment like you know paying attention to survive I don't think you will get the depression <laughs> But suddenly, after I wrote my book, this has been three years right now, one day I realized, I'm just, when I'm sitting in my room myself, I'm crying myself. Just, I don't know, out of blue, I do that very often. And then I somehow have, just can't breathe. That moment I realized, ah, this is a kind of depression. And then I was, that all came to all of a sudden without my control. And then I, at that moment I realized this is really dangerous things to deal, deal with. And then I was regretted that I was complaining to those people only after I experienced this. Thank you for that sort of honesty around feeling um, that, that moment of depression going back to the past. So how about we move towards the future? Um, and I can ask you a question about um, what is your vision for North Korea? What, what do you hope uh, happens in terms of, of North Korea? Um, politics, culture, society. Uh, and then maybe um, um, Jay and Danielle, you might also contribute in terms of where do you see um, the future of the North Korean regime and, and, and human rights? Um, sorry to get the crystal ball out, but <laughs> um, so, yeah, Hyunso. To talk about humor, to change North Korean human rights conditions in North Korea or change something into that country, I think this is a really difficult topic to do, deal with this compared to any other country in the world. Because other countries in Africa or etc., you can go in that country actually, but North Korea, none of you can go in that country, can see real world in there or deal with or meeting people. So only even I'm from North Korea, I mean, I, sometimes I don't know how to even deal with the human rights conditions inside North Korea. Maybe we can change or do help people who's hiding in China or the North Korean defectors living in South Korea, but in North Korea, because it's hard to approach. You know why the North Korean regime really hate to bring human rights issues? I think this time the Singapore summit I really expected that hoping President Trump can bring up the human rights issues, but he didn't this time, which I was very disappointed because I, before the meeting, I had a meeting with the President Trump in person at the White House, and then 50 minutes we spent all about talking about North human rights issues. So certainly, and then I was really surprised that he knew about North human rights issues a lot than I imagined. It was really shocking to me at the time, but so, <laughs> so, but I think probably North Korean regime asked before the summit don't mention about North Korean human rights issues because that's what they're doing it all the time. Then why regime more worry about human rights issues than talking about the denuclearization? I think human rights, if in North Korea, if, the, if we remove human rights issues, the regime can't no longer continue. Because the human rights abuses, that's the best weapon 
to control the regime, and then still for seven decades, still the regime is pretty safe in the society because human rights abuse is really important for the dictator. We have a public execution and political prison camp. Every single step we are deprived, every right as a human being. So people today, some people even awakened from the outside world about the information, but they can't speak up. That's the reason in North Korea we can't foresee what's the Jasmine Revolution or whatever. We, it's impossible. I, as long as I know, it's impossible. Many people are very surprised why it's impossible in North Korea. First of all, we, there's no comparison. We never experienced what's democracy or capitalism. That's why it's, and then we, the regime has big power. I mean, the public execution and political prison camp. Who can speak out about that? If you speak out about that, not only your family. In that case, the three generations of family will be removed to the political prison camp. That's why people live in fear. They should be ignorant. They can't talk about anything. That's why my, even my father, he didn't talk about any important important information about to us. So, to thinking about human rights abuses, it's almost imp impossible for North Korean regime to control the country. That's why the regime. I mean, the denuclearization maybe it's a protect for the regime, protect from the outside world, but the human rights is from domestic. If that's collapsed, the regime will be, the dictatorship will be collapsed. The people will stand up. That's why the, it's almost impossible to talk about human rights issues right now. I think the most important human rights issue for North Korea is the information, the access issue. Uh, without access, we don't know what's actually going on there, whether what kind of human rights accusation is actually you know, can be verified or actually taken place, what we can do as an outsider. Um, but the human rights itself, the, the language, the vocabulary itself, it carries very heavy moral uh, connotation. And North Korean regime, uh, especially, they see it as a political issue. They don't see it as a sort of, you know, international society try to help them, try to, you know, get them out of their isolation. Um, so we don't have to use human rights if they're so sensitive about that that particular vocabulary. What the current uh, government in South Korea, the current administration is doing is actually human rights. You know, family union, it's a right to family unity, uh, right to form family, right to see family, uh, right to private property, uh, freedom of movement. So they are doing the railway projects. The, both militaries are talking in terms of you know, tension release, uh, releasing tension around the border areas. They're talking about how to develop the DMZ. DMZ. Uh, these are all human rights issues because, uh, you know, as we all know, the Korean War didn't end with a peace treaty. We, are, you know, we only have a ceasefire. Armistice was signed by North Korea, China, and UN led by the United States. So war was never... Um, has never ended. We, we want peace building, trust building, and human rights should be uh, sort of approached in a more sort of subtle way, uh, you know, peacefully. I think that's quite feasible. I don't know how much I can add, but I'll, I'll just say, I think when we think about um, human rights in North Korea, as Jay and, and Hyunsoo both alluded to, it's about trying to address this idea that, that the North Korean regime is so scared of opening up people's eyes to what's going on because its entire existence relies on fear and it sees human rights as a political weapon absolutely it's a weaponized issue and it's also a language that doesn't um, translate very well um, so 
on the one hand, I think it is really important to continue to engage with North Korea on rights issues that aren't as threatening. So women's rights, disabilities rights, children's rights at the UN level. North Korean officials will talk about this. They see it as kind of soft human rights issues. It doesn't challenge their legitimacy. You know, having more access for disabled people, um, having better health care for children, maternity stuff. And that's not nothing, right? That's something. And it, it keeps these North Korean officials engaged in a system at the international level that, um, that talks about this human rights language all the time and also reminds them all the time that there will be accountability and if there is ever a transition, um, that they will be held accountable. But at the same time, because people on the ground, no true human rights change occurs in North Korea without um, a grassroots movement. And so broadcasting through shortwave radio, supporting those initiatives, um, getting information in, talking about what's going on in the outside world, assisting with this very kind of um, subversive but clever, I think, activism um, in a responsible way, I think there's a, there's a responsible way to do it, is also important. So doing these things, and um, I'll just I'll, I'll finish by saying when, when you know, scholars look at activism, they look for united front, and I think the very fact that the North Korean Human Rights Network is not united, is not cohesive, and is actually quite fractured, is the reason it's been so successful, because there's no one answer to this, and you need to have lots of different people doing lots of different things at the same time. That's a really interesting perspective. Uh, okay, we've got about um, 20, 25 minutes um, to go. So what I might do uh, is, uh, Matt, you're getting some microphones ready. Uh, I might open uh, it up to, uh, to questions. Uh, so uh, if you put your hand up, um, please, uh, can we keep the questions questions and can we keep the question short and to one question um, so that we can uh, hopefully get a, a few um, queries in. So the back here, Matt, hi. Yeah, I've got a question for Hyansia. You said that when you were in, living in North Korea, sort of like living in a vacuum, you had nothing to compare it to. But I'm wondering if people who, because you, know, you watch documentaries in the West and, um, you know, people get these USBs and so they are exposed to Western thinking, I suppose. Um, were, were you... No, I suppose you wouldn't have been, but... Are there people living in North Korea who are aware of... sort of the... Uh, the hell they're living in? Like, they know the, the situation... They're, the living conditions, everything about it is wrong, but there's nothing they can do about it? Or is everyone brainwashed, as they seem to be in those documentaries, or are they living in fear, so they just cannot say anything about it? Or um, Depending on the period, we have three different street di dictators, grandfather, his father, and the young one today. So, like, until his first dictator, Kim Il-sung, in 94, who died, until he died, that period, I think more than 99% of people really believed the regime, totally. Even I thought his God, who didn't even go to the bathroom. So we see the, <laughs> we see the funerals from the dictator's funeral. Every people crying severely, and then the Western people were so surprised whether that's faking or real. At the time, it's real. 
But after 2000, when 2011, when our second dictator died, by the time people, I mean, not everyone, many people, as educated people or from people living in the city or who has money to afford to buy foreign media contents like Hollywood movies or Soskin dramas, people, at least they knew that North Korea is not the paradise. I don't really know what the dictator means if they understand as much as we do, but I don't think they know that much. But at least they know that North Korea is not the best in the world. That's how 2011, when our second dictator died, I think more than, I mean, nearly, I don't know, the percentage we don't know, but I assume maybe a little bit more than 50% of people were really crying severely. But rest of them, which is significant numbers, they were faking because if they don't fake, if when the camera put in front of your face, if you don't cry, you will be sent to prison. You will be in trouble. So we, as a North Korean, everybody, we knows that. So two different periods, it's changed because through the famine, during the famine, the outside information went fled into North Korea. So today, I think many people know about that reality. Maybe the only countryside of people don't know about the real reality. But it, does them, it doesn't mean that they can speak out. As I said previously, you still have a public execution, political prison camp. The Kim family has too big power right now. That's why people, even they know about that, but they can't share that. So they had to keep hide themselves. So like, but it's changing a little bit. In the past, when I was in North Korea, even I can't, we can't trust to between husband and wives, even at the time, because they can't share any information. There's always betrayers or spying on each other. The system taught us like that. But over the time right now, the, it's a really important changes in North Korea. Very slightly changing right now. In the past, we couldn't trust a friend together. But right now, right now, between friends, they are watching social screen dramas together which is really impossible to think about that in the past because only always one of them will be betrayed and then to tell the, they're telling government what they've done. It happens all the time. But by sharing the secret together, they're building relations together in North Korea. So, and then one really important thing, as I think I wrote in my memoir, my, 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 my mother in my uh, province, she had a very power and then she had the friends with really high-ranking officials in the province and then I think probably he's the number one governor in my city she visited his home during the daytime before her defection and then when she was visiting his home there was TV, Kim Jong-il appeared on the TV and then what he did was he just turned off the TV with the remote, and he said, "P.S." <laughs> and, and then that attitude I can't imagine. As he's the number one governor in that town, in the city, he's just uh, in front of fr my mom considered his friend, but in front of friend, you are doing that acting. If my mom told the government, he, I mean, this is can't imagine the behavior. But it reminds me, oh, it is a changing. So people are, can blame together if you can trust, but not they are telling to governments that much as much as they used to be. But it doesn't, it doesn't mean everyone does the same. 
like it's not the in my book the story, but two years ago, what happened to my aunt? My aunt from book and pre, she wanted to escape the country. So I managed her escape everything from her and her daughter and my 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 another sibling's brother. So three of them, they ready to escape the country, but. What happened? Before they were crossing border into China, they were all captured and then sent to prison, and then they were in a severe torture, and then in the end, my uncle was killed from there. So, you know why it happened? My aunt made a phone call with me to South Korea to, you know, to manage the defection, but the home she used, her friend's home, and then that's, I heard that's all wrong relatives, her friends, but or wrong relatives. But she, her family, told the government everything. This happened only a few years ago. And then they all had to ensure trouble. So it doesn't mean, you know, it's a case by case, but I still want to say it's changing. So it's a really positive change. Okay. Uh, other questions? Put, put your hand up so I can see them. Uh, yep. Um, Thank you. So we're talking about the 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 human rights internal. What about this, like sanctions and stuff from the from the West and external? What sort of impact is that having on the human rights of the of the North Koreans? Um, so are you are you interested in what impact sanctions are having on the North Korean people? Um, so from what we can tell. The sanctions regime, as it is, I mean, there are lots of different opinions out there, and I'm sure we'll all have different opinions. I think that it is very hard to isolate humanitarian impact from sanctions, and some of the sanctions right now, especially sanctions around um, seafood, are very damaging to the local economies of a lot of of North Koreans, and I think that's really problematic. Um, But at the same time, sanctions are probably what brought Kim Jong-un to the negotiating table, part of it at least. And so it's a mixed bag. I mean, I, I, you could go on about this question forever and I won't talk for a long time, but I think that that's a very simple answer, is that the sanctions regime is not without problems and it does have adverse effects and it's, it shouldn't. The Commission of Inquiry report was very clear that any sanctions should, be, should avoid having any impact on, on people who already are struggling to get by day by, by day, but at the same time, there's a place for it, right? Because it does tell this regime that the way it's behaving is unacceptable. Do you want to add to that? Well, I think should have a greatest impact on the ordinary people, but I think top 3%, the Kim family probably wouldn't, wouldn't be uh, affected too much by that. And there are also you know, other international you know, members who are not always complying with the sanction regulation, including China. So they can always sort of backdoor to get the materials they need. Um, so it's not always sort of you know, strictly um, complied by all the members of the international society. I will repeat again that I met the vice president later this year. When I met him uh, in front of media, I didn't say that much, but off the record, after media left, right before he was leaving the room, I just personally talked to him because I didn't want people in South Korea hear what I'm saying about the sanction. I just said, this is only my opinion, I said, Thank, thanks for United uh, America's sanction on North Korea. Because of the sanction that North Korean people fled the country. 
so that the West right now, you know about the stories of what's happening inside, and then people are hiding in China, and then we, I came to South Korea. And because of sanctions, before they, people didn't know about the value of money in North Korea, and we didn't have a, the market that much. But because of sanctions, people went to black markets or market to earn money. They realized the value of money. And because of sanctions, we have so many things because of sanctions. So this is a really controversial topic today. There's a, many people are against with sanction or many people support with sanction. But I think without, if there's no sanctions, I think people today in North Korea, we were suffering just to, I mean, we can't, maybe the unification or the collapse of regime may be much longer than we expected. That's why I really support sanctions because you know why? Uh, yeah, the sanctions will hurt people, ordinary people, but my, what my experience is the sanctions will hurt the regime more because people, we, the, we in North Korea, we, the public distribution system is stopped from 1994. But today, people's life quality is getting better than in the past. But it doesn't mean because they were supported by the regime. They were earning money themselves, and then the fact is we, sending, we are sending into the country the money, that's a, a lot of amount of money we, we are keep sending. That helps North Korean economy system. So in that situation, if we put sanctions, of course, ordinary people will suffer as well, but more the regime, because they need hard currencies to ruling the country. Of course, the dictator, he doesn't want it to, you know, put them, his money out of his pocket, but the old organizations has to run with the money, the country, to the North Korean Workers' Party, but they need money, but the sanction really hurts them, then more North Korean citizens. Of course, there, the regime putting difficulties to people, you have to contribute this, that, that. But if you don't have money, people, they don't have to, because they don't have money to if buy rice tomorrow. So where's the money to contribute to the government? That's why I think we have to, to put really strongest sanctions until the regime totally, you know, do the denuclearization. But China is not helping at all. So this is another problem. Okay, we might have time for one or two uh, short questions. Uh, over here, yep. Hi, Danielle, you talked about um, regime change coming from grassroots organisations. I was wondering, are there any moderates or reformists in the actual Politburo of the North Korean regime? Look at the history of Korea. Korea was colonised by Japan from 1910 to 1945, and before it was the Joseon dynasty, so it was a kingdom. And then we have uh, had 36 years of colonization by Japan. Uh, South Korea was lucky enough to go through the democratization process in capitalism and market uh, economy. North Korea was under uh, Soviet military rule from 1945-1948. Uh, and then since then, it was Kim Il-sung, the founding father of North Korea, Juche ideology, followed by his son, Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong and then his grandson, Kim Jong-un. So they have no experience of democracy. Revolt, revolting against the regime is unthinkable because it's, the, it's the carried on, it's a continued um, 
you know, authoritarianism from kingdom to colonial experience and this Chiche ideology. Um, so the grassroots, really the grassroots from, from the masses, from working class, it's, it's unthinkable. Well, there are some discussions about there will be a military coup or Politburo sort of challenging the, the young, young one. But when uh, Kim Jong-un seized the power of, uh, for the first three years, he was getting rid of all the political opponents, including his uncle, Chang Song-tek. He was uh, publicly executed. Um, what, how Kim Jong-un did was gather uh, together all his uh, followers, Jiang Song-tek's followers, and killed him in front of them to create that sort of fear and you know, the terror. He killed his uncle, he killed his uh, half-brother who died in Malaysian airport. Um, uh, but the source, um, according to some sources, there are about four, uh, 400 uh, party members were purged. Uh, and if you're extending their family members and their followers and friends, it can be up to 1,000. Uh, it's, it's repeated um, sort of political purge always happen when there's a new regime. Uh, Kim Jong-un's father, Kim Jong-il, did uh, exactly the same thing, uh, getting rid of all the political opponents. So within Politburo, uh, within the party and military, by now, I think his power is quite solid, so no chance. I just have a quick question. <clears throat> Um, regarding education in North Korea, is it somewhat limited due to the lack of access to information outside of North Korea? And I'm talking um, from kindergarten all the way up to a tertiary level. Um, if you could sort of elaborate on that for me, um, if at all, please. And, and the gentleman behind you also had a question. We'll, yeah, we'll take mine's that one as well. um, a bit different, unfortunately. Um, we've seen a very small opening to tourism in North Korea, although it's a very small market, um, well that's growing under this current um, Kim Jong-un um, regime with the Pyong Marathon, etc. Um, what an impact, if any, do you think tourism could have on social change? Can you imagine North Korea is where still they don't have internet? I mean, only recent years they brought internet in Pyongyang to certain organizations, including universities. But ordinary citizens, still, they, they are not allowed to approach internet and people don't know what's internet, but they know intranet, they thought that is internet. And then 2009, only they brought the cell phone system because the education about the outside world, the regime control it, com completely control the people, not because they are ignorant the regime on purpose to make people ignorant. And then the tourism. Actually, this time, I, I, I've been in Australia for like 10 days, I guess, from Brisbane, Newcastle, whatever. So many people say, oh, I've been in North Korea a few years ago, etc. They were telling me really with a happy face. <laughs> but every time when I encounter this, I don't know, I said, in deep down, I said, oh, thank you, you visited my home country. <laughs> But I really disagree with the tourism. I wrote about this kind of article several times in you know media, because uh, unless North Korean regime not benefit for them, they will never agree to do that. But Kim Jong Un has the priority these days to accept more tourists into their country to make the money and turn to brainwash people, showing people Pyongyang as if North Pyongyang is the, all North Korea as the kingdom of the dictator, but people were confused. Actually, many foreign tourists after visiting North Korea came back to me and said, I thought North Korea was really horrible, but 
It looked like just normal. I know we see we saw many fake, or, or that's all like it's it's like already they you know plant. I know that, but to me like the city looks like completely normal. That exactly the reason one what they wanted to he hear from the world. That's why they brought people. But for me, we I say only we have one TV channels, and then what we see from TV every day the about their leaders, besides that, many white foreigners visiting North Korea as a tourist. It happened even when I was very young. And then they all the way brought flowers, you know, and then they're paying their best respect to all their leaders, or, or bowing in front of statues. They're, we have a ton of statues in North Korea, and then bowing in front of statues. And I was thinking, look, and the the, on TV, the anchor even said that those people came to my country because of all dear leader. So I was thinking, look, even white people, they all the way come to my country to show their respect so, to all dear leader. He must be the number one you know, the human being in this world. That's why when, in 1994, when he died, I thought this whole world would be finished. Seriously. So that, that kind of brainwash. It's really important for North Korean people, for the regime, brainwashing people, their white people's behavior. I didn't know actually they were forced to bow to the statues. We didn't know about the fact, only I found out a few years ago. That's why I say, don't go to North Korea today, but I believe the regime will be collapsed one day. You can go at the time, and then you can see even the political prison camp that you can't see right now. <laughs> Daniel, um, did you want to add to that? Just, I mean, on the question of education, it's also going to touch on the tourism thing. I, I spent three weeks in Pyongyang in 2007. And I must say, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't there as a tourist. I was there as a, um, a scholar, as a guest of the Korean Academy of Social Sciences. And I must say it had the opposite impact on me. Um, because, so to answer the education, we spent three weeks studying philosophy. We spent three weeks studying Chuche and Chachisong. And it's, it's enough to make a person who's brought up in the West go completely crazy. And then you're taken to all these places and you get the same story every time. And from a Western perspective, things look very different. I did not show my respects to the dear leader. All the nine North Korean minders were very busy bowing. They don't notice whether you bow or not. But there's a great deal of moral, there's a great deal of moral danger going to a place like North Korea. I am not sure I would go now, exactly for the reasons that Hyunso says here, but so when it comes to education, I went to a lot of schools. Uh, they take us to a lot of schools, the best, the best maternity hospital, the best kindergarten. And I didn't have children at the time, but one of my um, colleagues did, she had small children, and she watched these young children performing for us, and she just, she couldn't handle it, because she said, I've never seen a three-year-old that disciplined. What do you have to do to a child to make them perform like that? How come these children all think the same, talk the same? For our North Koreans, they were very proud of this. Look at how loyal and wonderful our people are. But from a Western perspective, I think things look very different. And I think a very good movie to watch is A State of Mind, a documentary, A State of Mind by Nick Bonner, because it shows, without commentary, the lives of two young girls training for the um, mass games. And I think that the, 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 the trick to that movie, that documentary, is that we watch it with Western eyes, but it's perfectly acceptable to the North Koreans because they see it through North Korean eyes. And so when you watch it, try and look at it through two different lenses. Just very quickly. Uh, in North Korea, I mean, in 
democratic country, education is a right, right to education. But in North Korea, it's duty to education. It's not, you know, going to school um, is, is limited, but you have to go to school. But what you are taught is all about Kim Il-sung, Chuche ideology, uh, the Chaju Song independence, self-reliance, uh, anti-imperialism, you know, uh, anti-Americanism. It's, it's, the, it's the contents um, you know, that they're, they're, uh, they're studying, they're learning. Uh, tourism, very quickly. Uh, What's well, interesting to hear from Hyunsa that she's for uh, sanction but against tourism. I'm the opposite. Uh, I think, I think isolation is what Kim Jong-un wants. Uh, he can survive uh, losing a, a, a few defections, mass defections. He can still survive with his lawyer, uh, sup, uh, lawyer supporter in, um, uh, in, in Pyongyang, the capital of uh, uh, North Korea. But when you go to North Korea, just don't steal the poster. Uh, you'll end up being like Otto Wambier, which is sad. Okay, well, uh, I think we are out of time, um, but uh, I hope that you uh, will join me in thanking our speakers uh, for this evening for a really insightful um, and interesting uh, set of discussions.